We hear God's word from Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. Father, we once again commit ourselves to you as we listen to your word, and we pray that you would uh, cause us to grow in our appreciation for all that you have done uh, for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On January 12 of 2007, very well-known violinist by the name of Joshua Bell stepped off of the Metro subway in Washington, D.C. You may have heard of him. Uh, he parked himself against a wall next to a garbage can, uh, put a baseball cap on his head, opened up his violin case, put a few coins into it, and then he proceeded to play. That was going to be kind of seed money. And uh, for the next 45 minutes, he played Mozart and Schubert to more than 1,000 people who walked uh, by. This was uh, an experiment put on by Gene Weingarten of the Washington Post. It later won a Pulitzer uh, Prize, but it was a documentary on buskers. Well, Bell collected uh, $32.17 during that 45 minutes from 27 people who did not recognize him. I'm not sure what that averages to. 32 bucks from 27 people, but he got $20 from one person who did recognize him, and most did not know they were getting exactly the same concert that he had played three days before in the Boston Symphony Hall that people had play, paid 100 bucks a ticket for, and they had no idea he was playing on a $3 million Stradivarius uh, violin. I'd be kind of nervous having that violin in, in the Washington, D.C. subway. But anyway, the whole event was filmed as a part of a project, as I mentioned, that uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. But it's interesting how so many people uh, could pass by a famous violinist playing a $3 million violin and hardly give it a thought. No doubt they were too preoccupied with other things. Well, 2,000 years earlier, there was a far, far greater person who walked among the crowds in Israel, and a minority of people did recognize him, did acclaim him, but most people either ignored him or they actually opposed him, they rejected him. They failed to recognize that Jesus was the creator of all, the Lord of the universe, the incarnate King of Kings. And those who did recognize him as the Messiah probably did not fully understand who it was that they were following, that he really was Jehovah God, the Lord of glory. A thousand years before Jesus, David wrote this psalm, as the title uh, indicates there. He was a shepherd, musician, 
He was a warrior, he was a king himself, but he was also an inspired prophet. And as a prophet, God gave him, so to speak, an inspired window, it was like a telescope by which he could clearly see the identity of this coming Messiah. And what a marvelous picture he paints of Jesus on Palm Sunday. This psalm is actually part of a trilogy of messianic psalms. Uh, let me go through the three of them. Psalm 22 pictures Jesus as the priest and the lamb who reconciles the world to himself. And by the end of the psalm, the entire world is a saved world. It's reconciled. Psalm 23 uh, shows the shepherd who cares for those people who have been saved and reconciled. And then Psalm 24 shows the divine king who also rules over this newly formed people. Now, some commentators have... Uh, ascribe three C's. I don't know who was the first person that came up with these three C's to those three psalms. But he speaks of the, they speak of the psalms as being the cross, the crook, you know, the shepherd's crook, the cross, the crook, and the crown. And they fit together and they complement each other perfectly. In order to know Christ as shepherd, that's Psalm 23, you have to already have known him as the suffering Savior, Psalm 22, which inevitably leads to your bowing before his lordship in Psalm 24. So Psalms 22, 23, 24, they really belong together. They're very tightly knit together as messianic psalms. Now let me give you a little bit more background information that might help us to understand this psalm. And I actually shared some of this material a few weeks ago in an introduction to worship. But um, Jewish tradition says that this psalm was first sung when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God, and you'll remember that the glory cloud rose up into the sky above that Ark of the Covenant. When it was in the tabernacle, it was almost like this pillar, this fiery pillar, this cloud was sitting on that ark, as if this really literally was the throne of the Shekinah glory. And you can imagine the reverence and the awe that God's presence would produce when the glory cloud came into the city to declare God's lordship over Israel and over all the earth. It would have been an awesome spectacle, unless, of course, God hid his glory until he came into his resting place. So there's debate on that. Was the glory cloud always above the ark? I happen to be of the persuasion that God actually hid uh, his glory until it came into its resting place. But, um, uh, and that's really a kind of a foreshadowing of Jesus, hiding his glory while he was here on earth. But either way, uh, it is a, a marvelous uh, picture. One other background fact that is helpful in understanding this psalm is that it was one of the seven psalms that was sung in a cycle during this uh, Passover period. And let me just go through them. On, on Sunday, Palm Sunday, they sang Psalm 24. On Monday, it was Psalm 48. On Tuesday, it was Psalm 82. On Wednesday, it was Psalm 94. On Thursday, it was Psalm 81. Uh, that's the psalm, you know, that says, oh, that my people would listen to me. On Friday, it was Psalm 93. On Saturday, it was Psalm 92. And then on Resurrection Day, it was Psalm 24 again. And so at the very time that the leaders are trying to hush the crowds and stop the children from singing about Jesus and his kingdom, 
The priests inside the temple are welcoming Jesus unwittingly, but they're welcoming Jesus by singing this song. And he walked toward that temple surrounded by hundreds of thousands of sheep on Palm Sunday because that's the very day that all of those sheep were herded to the temple. And so he's going to the temple as the sacrificial lamb. He's going there as the priest. But in this psalm, he is going to that temple as the king who now exercises his authority over that temple, cleanses it, says it's filled with a den of thieves, and he kicks them all out of his father's house. And really, there's a lot of other really cool things in there. When you study all of the things that God and his providence made sure happened during the Passion Week, it's just astounding, all of the connections to the Lord Jesus Christ. But enough for, for today on that uh, background. Let's dig into this psalm. First two verses speak of Christ's right to enter his kingship. So just five points, no subpoints. very simple to follow. This first one speaks of Christ's right to enter his kingship. Here and throughout the psalm, Jesus is acknowledged as Yehovah, it's Lord in all capital letters. When Jesus showed that he could command the waves and the wind uh, on the Sea of Galilee, his disciples fell down on their faces before him and they worshiped him. They recognized his divine character. And um, Peter was so humbled that he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke 5, verse 8. They recognized his divine right of kingship. Now, verses 1 through 2 of this psalm say this. The earth is Jehovah's, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So as the creator of all things, Jesus is the owner of all things, and that means that he is the Lord of all things. He is very God of very God. He is Jehovah. He is the covenant Lord of all. Hallelujah. He is who he says he is. And if the earth and everything in it belongs to Jesus, that means you belong to Jesus and you owe Jesus your full-hearted allegiance and uh, submission. We should be a part of that crowd that cries out, Hosanna. And we have been, right? A part of that crowd. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Jesus has every right to be the king of your life. You owe him your unconditional surrender and allegiance. And it should be your joy to declare him to be your king. After all, Revelation 5 verse 12 says this, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive what? To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So that's a very simple point. Those first two verses show that Jesus had the right to enter into his kingship. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't think so. They rejected Jesus. They did not accept him as Lord. But we can do so definitely this morning. But secondly, Jesus has all the qualifications needed for entering into his kingship. Uh, people knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of, of David, but so far, no descendant met the qualifications that were laid out for this messianic king. Look at verses 3 through 4. Who may ascend into the, holy, in, into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. And then comes a Selah, and Selah is just a, a, a Hebrew word that means, I want you to stop for a moment. Let's, let's pause the music and let's meditate upon these words. But you know what? The more you meditate upon these words, the more you realize that not a one of us measures up to the description that is given in these words. For example, do any of us have a 100% pure heart? I don't. Uh, are, are there any who can honestly say they have never made an idol out of any of their desires? That their desires have never been inordinate desires? Are any of us uh, able from the time that we were born till now to say we have 100% always kept our word? Have you always thought and spoken the truth? Always and only. I haven't. There's only one man in human history of whom these words are true, and it's Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, our King. He had to be perfect to be a substitute sacrifice who would suffer in our place. He had to be perfect in order to give us his righteousness and justification. He had to be perfect to be our mediator. He had to be perfect to be our king. And the gospels show that he was indeed qualified. Now, should we aspire to this standard? And the answer of Scripture is yes. First uh, John says, if we claim to abide in Jesus, we ought to walk in exactly the way that he walked, which means we need to keep God's laws, right? Uh, we need to be characterized by the, 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 the descriptions in these verses that we just read. But the bottom line is, it doesn't matter how much we have grown in our sanctification, how much we have reached that goal, we still cannot say that we have 100% kept it. Only Jesus kept God's law 100% perfectly. And so this psalm is about Jesus and those who are united to Jesus. Okay? We can keep these words in Jesus and only in Jesus. Now the Pharisees who rejected Jesus were rejecting the only hope of their salvation. They were rejecting the only one who was qualified to be king. And so I think it's rather interesting, maybe the word irony is, is appropriate here, that later that week they would declare somebody because they rejected Jesus, they would say, we have no king but Caesar. And I think it is generally true that when societies reject Jesus, they automatically begin to have a Caesar as their Lord. I think it's just an automatic thing that statism uh, replaces uh, the whole that's left when Jesus is gone. And uh, ultimately, uh, those who are followers of Jesus tend to come into conflict with the state. I think that's a, a side note as well. But anyway, back to the words in this psalm. James Montgomery Boyce and others have noted that this psalm was being sung antiphonally. Antiphonally means a group will sing over here and maybe another group or maybe a soloist will sing over there and they just respond sort of like we did in the song earlier. So um, they are forced by God's providence to acknowledge that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. And so as the choir sang, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? 
many commentators say it's indicated that a solo voice answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Now, I can't prove it, but it wouldn't surprise me if Jesus was approaching the temple when this was being sung. But think of the significance of those words. He's not just talking about a person who outwardly has kept God's laws, but he's indicating this is a person who inwardly, in his mind, in his dispositions, he is 100% aligned with God's word, which basically leaves you and me out of heaven. It leaves you and me off of God's holy hill. Unless, of course, you're united to Jesus by faith. Right? And that's the good news of the gospel in a nutshell. The application of Christ's salvation that he wrought on the cross during this Passion Week is, first of all, applied in our lives when the Holy Spirit calls us. And Paul would say we're being called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And any time God calls, things happen. You can think of that right from the time of creation when God called the worlds into existence. They immediately came into existence. Uh, when God said, let there be light, there was light. And when God calls by His Spirit for our salvation, says, let there be light in your soul, let there be a new nature, instantly things begin to happen. And the first thing that happens is we are regenerated. So there's the call, then there's regeneration. Regeneration immediately changes our perspective. We see our sins in a new light. We see our need of a Savior, which immediately results in faith and repentance. And faith and repentance claims hold of Jesus. You know, we call it, I speak of that as conversion, which leads to justification. And the justification is having a new record before God, which leads to a new life, and that new life is called sanctification, right? But in terms of application, the Holy Spirit enables us, first of all, to submit to His kingship, to say, yes, Lord, I bow before you as Lord, as my Lord, and as my Savior. And that brings us to the third point. I want you to notice in verse 7 that Christ's kingship must be acknowledged. Verse 7 is not presented as an option. It stands as a mandate. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Let me give you a little bit of background on the original scene. Uh, it was all symbolic of other things that were going on. Uh, there was some play acting that was going on. So just imagine that you were David, you're being accompanied by this huge throng that's going up to the gates, and there is four Levites who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders up to this uh, gate at Jerusalem, and these Levites who are carrying the Ark cry out, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And so it was a demand that Yehoah not be kept out of the city, but that his lordship be acknowledged by admitting him into the heart of that city. That's the only way that the gates can be everlasting, is if the everlasting king is within them. Everyone in that city, including King David, was being commanded to submit to Yehoah's kingship. And this is really what happens to us when we are converted. We repent of our lawlessness, and we believe that Jesus' law-keeping is sufficient to justify us. His righteousness is given to us. Uh, we invite him to be the Lord of our lives. We submit to his kingship. And I use that term, invite, 
uh, very loosely because there's a twist here. As we'll see in the next words, Christ enters the city whether we ask him or not. And according to Romans, no man seeks after God. <laughs> None of us ask, do we? So he enters the city even when we question who he is. It's not just an invitation that Jesus hopes people will accept. It is a demand that Jesus ensures they will accept. Praise God. Otherwise, none of us would be saved. So God enables what he commands. That's a quote from Augustine. Now take a look at verses 8 through 10, and this is the next major point. Who is this king of glory? That's the first question, and it's really a challenge. Who is it that demands my surrender? I don't know him. Why should I let him in? Now, some commentators imagine that these pretend skeptics are the guards who have the authority to open and close uh, those gates of the city, and they're play-acting as part of a, a, of a grand drama. They ask, who is this king of glory? And the answer given by the Levites accompanying the Ark of the Covenant is, Yehovah, strong and mighty. Yehovah, mighty in battle. <laughs> you know, this, this is not a king you mess with. And the Levites who represent that uh, king on his throne, which is the Ark of the Covenant, repeat the command, and it is a command, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Well, the guards once again say, who is this king of glory? To which the Levites respond in chorus, Jehovah of hosts, he is the king of glory. And the gates are opened, huge procession accompanying this king of glory, march in to declare that Jehovah is the king of the city and his hosts are his armies. In other words, he's taken over the city, right? It's a beautiful picture of Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is a beautiful picture of Christ's lordship overall. Now it may, and it always is, initially resisted, because again, no man seeks after God, but he will have his way. And he does so over a long period of time. Now, as I mentioned, James Montgomery Boyce points to Jewish evidence that this psalm was sung on the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. So on the day that the priests are singing this psalm inside the temple, the Pharisees are rebuking Jesus on the outside. These Pharisees are in effect saying, who is this king of glory? But he did ride in to declare his lordship, whether they wanted him to ride in or not. And I think this even applies to the individual. There is a theory out there that is thankfully not as common, but it's a theory that says you can accept Christ as Savior and reject him as Lord and still be saved. And maybe there's the option of accepting him as Lord down the road. But uh, I want to tell you the reality that you don't have him as Savior as all, at all if you don't have him as Lord. Because he's not two persons. He's, he, he's, he's not a schizophrenic. You cannot divide Jesus up. In Isaiah 49, verse 26, God says, I, the Lord, am your Savior. It is a Lord who is your Savior. And that's why the Bible says we must believe in the what? Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not Savior and Lord, but in the Scripture it's the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Saul of Tarsus, if you want a word picture of this, he's a beautiful illustration of somebody who refused to submit to Christ's Lordship. He is hot on the trail of Christians trying to kill them, and Christ knocks him off his horse, blinds him, but shines light into his spiritual eyes, into his soul, 
gives him faith, and the first words that come out of his mouth are a submission to his Lord. What do you want, Lord? <laughs> He's just going to follow whatever the Lord has to say. You don't have Jesus as Savior if you don't have Jesus as Lord. Well, the last characteristic of Jesus that I want to highlight is that Jesus comes to fight against all his and our enemies. So that's the last point. He comes to fight against all his and our enemies. And we see this in a couple of phrases. Verse 8 calls him strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, mighty in battle. The second part of verse 10 calls him the Lord of hosts or Jehovah of armies. And so there's a battle, there are armies. Hebrew word for hosts is really the normal word for fighting armies. Jesus is not a king who simply accepts the status quo where we dictate, nah, I'm not really interested in following what Jesus has to say. No, he is not a king who accepts the status quo. Jesus comes into the city to fight against anything that resists his rule. And I think it's beautifully symbolized on Palm Sunday when Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. He, he had a whip in his hand and he scourged these people out of the temple. Um, he is in the temple cleansing business, but he's really in the cleansing of this world business, the cleansing of our lives business. Uh, we can rejoice that Jesus is right now fighting against the evils in our nation. He often uses enemies, by the way, to fight against each other. I think in some ways that's what's happening. Uh, there, people are being positioned to be opposed to each other where we don't even have to fight. But whether God does that or not, whether he sends plagues or other things, he fights. That's the point. Exodus 14, 14 says, Yehovah will fight. Deuteronomy 1.30 says, Yehovah your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. 43 times the Bible says, Yehovah will fight. Now this means if your heart resists his lordship, he will resist you. He will fight against you. It is of the very nature of his kingship to fight against anything and everything that resists his will, his kingdom, and the laws of his kingdom. He teaches us to gladly pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. We imitate Christ in that and saying, I, I'm in total submission to your will. And this is really true of society as well. When society resists his lordship, Christ guarantees that he will fight against that society. Don't think everything's going to be going hunky-dory in America with all of the resistance against Christ that's going on. Uh, Revelation 19 symbolically describes the warfare of King Jesus in these words. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine lemon, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As King of Kings, he fights, he wars, he conquers. And when we celebrate Palm Sunday, uh, we should realize this is what he inaugurated there. Now, we tend to think of him as riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, 
And that is true. That was the initiation. That was the coronation symbol. Uh, if you look in the Old Testament, when people got uh, coronated, many times it was on a donkey or on a, uh, on a mule. So it was the, 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 the symbol of peace, really. But when Israel rejected the peace that Jesus offered, he warred against them. He gave them war. When Rome rejected his peace, he gave Rome war. If you reject his peace, he will give you war. And the interesting thing about Christ's judgments is that they're for the purpose of advancing his kingdom. They're for our good. They're uh, redemptive judgments is what we call them. And so as a result of his wars down through history, multitudes came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And he is guaranteed he will continue to reign from the right hand of the Father until all enemies are put under his feet. That's 1 Corinthians 15. That's Colossians chapter 1. Until his peace goes to the ends of the earth. You can see that in Isaiah and Psalm 72, so many passages. And this means that Palm Sunday is not just a time when we lay our garments underneath Christ's feet for him to walk upon. That's what the multitude symbolically did. That's a symbol that we're laying all that we are, all that we have under his feet, and we want all of planet Earth, every square inch, to be under the feet of King Jesus. So that's really the call, the meaning of this psalm. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for this psalm, that it is a promise that will be accomplished. We're thankful, Father, that we can be a part of that. And as um, Ray uh, preached earlier, about Jesus being the banner, I pray that we would repair to the banner, that we would follow after him, that we would do his will. It would be our joy to advance his cause. Uh, help us, Father, guide us and enable us to be a part of this advancement of the kingdom of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We love each one of these psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Father, may they be uh, psalms that drive us forward with enthusiasm to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.